0: 2020 was a year unlike any other in the 40-year history of the HIV-AIDS pandemic. The COVID-19 pandemic poses geopolitical threats to progress in the field and has impacted many of the systems in place meant to combat HIV. As the COVID pandemic continues into 2021, unprecedented disruptions, social and economic instability, fear of accessing health facilities, and impacts on current HIV programs, Force the global health community to reassess how to adapt, protect, and sustain progress. In this podcast, we will speak to experts, community leaders, and people living with HIV about the progress towards meeting HIV targets under this new COVID reality and the future of health security in low and middle income countries. I'm Catherine Bliss, and this is AIDS 2021. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of AIDS 2021, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. I'm Catherine Bliss, a senior fellow with the center, and I'm joined today by Chip Lyons, president and CEO of the Elizabeth Glaser Pediatric AIDS Foundation, or EGPAF, and Monsignor Robert Vitillo, health attaché with the Mission of the Holy See to the United Nations in Geneva, and Secretary General of the International Catholic Migration Commission. Both Chip and Bob have extensive experience working at the intersection of global policy, programming, and advocacy around preventing children from being infected with HIV and ensuring those who are living with HIV are properly diagnosed and initiated on appropriate treatment at the earliest possible moment. Over the past year, the COVID-19 pandemic has really threatened to undermine recent progress with respect to pediatric HIV programs. Lockdowns, quarantine measures, and parents' fears of being infected with coronavirus have led to fewer antenatal care visits from mothers and slowed uptake of measures to prevent mother-to-child transmission, while the disruption of transportation routes has slowed delivery of critical medical commodities to clinics and dispensaries. The full impact of the pandemic on pediatric HIV has yet to be seen. But indicators point to a rise in infections and AIDS-related deaths among children. At a time when there are more tools than ever to prevent and treat pediatric HIV infections, innovations in research collaboration and service delivery to enhance partnerships can play an important role. So Chip, let me, let me start with you if I can. In 2016, UNAIDS, the Joint UN Program on HIV-AIDS, and PEPFAR, the U.S. Global AIDS Program, launched the Start Free, Stay Free, AIDS-Free framework. The goal was really to focus global attention on the persistent challenge of preventing, diagnosing, and sustainably treating HIV among children in a set of 23 high-burden countries, primarily in sub-Saharan Africa. And this framework really built on the foundation of older programs like the Global Plan toward the elimination of new HIV infections, and it prioritized ending new HIV infections among children. Reducing the number of adolescent girls and young women acquiring HIV and ensuring that nearly all children and adolescents living with HIV were on antiretroviral therapy, something like 95%. But one of the issues, you know, even in 2016 when this was launched was that, that while there had been considerable global progress since 2010, children infected with HIV were still not being tested or enrolled on treatment in sufficient numbers. And now we have all of the challenges associated with COVID-19. So can you say, you know, just kind of thinking about this period from 2010, you know, with the then the launch of this framework in 2016 and up till now, you know, what have been the major challenges in terms of prevention and diagnosis and why, despite years of programmatic and advocacy efforts, does, you know, really kind of moving this agenda forward remain kind of a persistent challenge?
1: Thank you for hosting this podcast, and those are the right questions to ask. We were making steady, very consistent progress from 2010 forward, in part because of the impetus of the global plan um, that created much more focus on kids and adolescents and mothers because of the additional political will that that generated additional resources and investments that were made. But we saw it started to plateau um, in 2017, 2018. And I think we've been able to focus in on where and why we are not hitting our targets. On the one hand, the target for reaching 95% of pregnant women living with HIV with ARV therapy. Is close to being achieved at 88% in the focus countries and more than 95% in seven of them. As a result of that, 940,000 child HIV infections were prevented between 2015 and 2019 in the focus countries. On the other hand, and here's the big but, and it gets to your question in 2019, there were 110,000 children still acquiring HIV in these countries because the treatment coverage for pregnant women only captures one aspect of what leads to new child infections. You may recall that the target for 2020 was 40,000 new infections, and we are still at 110,000 new infections in 2019. So way, way off, hugely disconcerting. I want to say that throughout that period, those accomplishments were, in spite of the fact that we had quite suboptimal tools, and I think it's what you're getting at also in your question, both in terms of diagnostics and in uh, treatment, and I'll come back to that in a second, because that's the, that was the real focus of the Rome consultations that Father Bob and his colleagues uh, orchestrated. Here's the key, the, the persistent challenges are in retaining pregnant and breastfeeding women in care. And our targets and data do not adequately capture if women on treatment are retained and adherent during pregnancy and breastfeeding. The point there is viral load suppression is key for women's health and to prevent vertical transmission. And that's where we're failing and that gets to the heart of your question. 13 of the focus countries in Africa have a vertical transmission rate that exceeds 10%. And about half of this transmission occurs during pregnancy. Uh, Or delivery and the other half during breastfeeding. So that's where there's increasing risk. That's where additional attention has to be paid. And that's when you can focus in more on how do you test faster children that may be HIV exposed? How do you retain women in care on ARVs? And how do you ensure that they are negative and or positive on treatment through both uh, their pregnancy the perinatal period, and the breastfeeding period.
0: So, you know, it sounds like it's really a combination, you know, not just of ensuring that mothers and children make it into health centers, but also gathering the data and analyzing the data and really, you know, putting all of that to, you know, to work for identifying where, you know, additional efforts need to be made.
1: It really has to be about... The data is like a flashlight. If you're sort of in the dark and unsure of what's causing these infections, the the data illuminates where you have to focus. Is it the pregnancy period? Is it the breastfeeding period? Is it zero converting during pregnancy? Is it going off ARVs during the breastfeeding uh, period? The data tells us where the, the barriers remain.
0: Bob, let me turn to you for a second. Getting people into health centers is is critically important, but as Chip has laid out, you know, getting the data and analyzing the data is also, you know, a, a key element of, of the work. Proving prevention, diagnosis, and treatment options for children living with HIV, you know, is really involves much more than the health sector. A lot of forces and resources, you know, financial, human, political, all have to come together to to make things happen, and particularly in a sustained way across multiple geographies. Responding to the call for better treatments, in particular for children, in 2017, the Vatican convened pharmaceutical companies, international organizations, donor countries, regulatory agencies, and program implementing organizations to really focus very specifically on this challenge of treatment. So, you know, I'd like to ask you to say, you know, what... What you saw as some of the challenges around making treatments sustainable for pediatric populations, why did this framework of partnership and bringing together these these different sectors make sense? And in particular, why did the Vatican take this on at this particular moment?
2: Good questions, Catherine, and thank you for inviting me to be part of this podcast. First of all, the Vatican has had uh, a long history in, in responding through the Catholic Church throughout the world to health crises, and those crises go back to the medieval times and even earlier than that. So we're not unused to pandemics, and also we're not unused to the practical care of people. So we have the experience, the practical experience, and we also have an ear to the whole world. You know, we talk about multinational corporations. Well, the Catholic Church and many other religious traditions are very multinational as well. And we have a system of hearing from the people in the field who are taking care of those who are sick, in need, and also then uh, from the people themselves, because they're part of local church communities. So we knew that there was a real struggle in terms of reaching the children. Even as we began to reach more and more of the mothers, the children still were not being diagnosed and were not getting treatment. And there were many practical issues around that. Some was that not enough research and development had been dedicated to pediatric HIV versus the adults' uh, infections where much progress had been made. Also, the fact was that the adult HIV affected people had a voice. They had activism working for them and they had been working on that until they were able to get uh, treatment availability throughout the world. Children didn't have that same voice. And so the church saw the real need to uh, be part of this. We also had the people in the field caring for those children who came and reported that. And we gathered some of those clinicians and, and the, the Catholic health structures to share with us what was going on, even before we went the next step to gather this much larger group of people that you mentioned. And we also thought that there were some problems in the fact that there's a lot of talk and there are a lot of uh, plans and frameworks that get developed, especially by UN and other multi-sectoral organizations. And yet sometimes they don't get transferred, transmitted into real action. And so that is what we were looking for as we started to gather these people.
0: So in terms of You know, the Rome Action Plan or the initial commitments were, you know, made in 2017. It really came together around treatment issues. And, you know, it sounds like the partners saw that adult populations through activism over several decades had really been able to develop a voice and a seat at the table for a lot of important discussions around treatment, but that pediatric populations just by their very nature of being young and still living at home with families and that kind of thing, you know we're just not as well represented in some of those discussions. you know I guess chip, I would ask you to you know comment on you know how you see the Vatican's leadership, you know the convening role in in this work around treatment you know being the kind of unique aspects of of that convening, you know why that has been particularly important. And, you know, also how you see, you know, some of the work of the Rome Action Plan, how that has expanded since 2017 to accelerate a focus on diagnostics and, and other kinds of programs for children, how that has been most effective.
1: That made a number of important points that I can elaborate on and, and answer your question. I think what was established in the early Rome consultations was the understanding that children were neglected. There was not the same level of R and D around pediatrics and so on. The diagnosis was a major issue as well, which I want to speak to because there was a major breakthrough on that. As I mentioned earlier, we're basically dealing with suboptimal tools relative to adult uh, populations. What the consultations did is to invite the key players, so from pharma, from regulatory agencies from multilateral organizations, practitioners, implementing partners, and so on, and established a common understanding and, frankly, a common set of objectives. The problem is that each one of those players are indispensable. Each one of them are highly dependent on the other to make progress. So pharma needs WHO. WHO needs pharma. They both need the FDA and the European Medical Authority to approve things. And sort of standard operating procedures are long, laborious, expensive, and don't tend to prioritize children. What happened in Rome repeatedly was a kind of, um, if you can consider taking this step, say, from the pharma point of view towards uh, the regulators or the norm uh, setters, that would allow us to do X. And in so doing, we can accelerate the timeline or, or make other kinds of improvements that the other end of that pipeline is improved pediatric formulation, improved diagnostics for kids. And because the right people were convened at the same time at a very high level, so there was authority and knowledge and ability to make uh, commitments. Under the auspices and leadership of Cardinal Turkson and Father Bob, it's quite an unusual setting uh, to be at the Vatican, to have this common point of view. I think there's an agreement that the treatment for kids or the negligence towards kids was just unconscionable. And so we have collectively in, in our power, if we work together and sometimes differently and faster, we can close the gap in the tools that are available for kids. And so at the end of last year, Vive Healthcare announced a major development in terms of pediatric dilutegravir, and it also was at a a much reduced price. On the diagnostic side, we had showed um, over the last couple of years in work across 10 countries that we could reduce the turnaround time on a pediatric diagnosis from an average of 50 days to zero days. Point of care, early infant diagnosis is an absolute game changer, but we've only had that in the last couple of years. The data behind it, it's cost uh, competitive, it's hugely effective, but the scale of that is stalled. And so we need a combination of political commitments and investment and additional commitments so that the rollout, the uptake of improved pediatric formulations, improved diagnostic capabilities actually turn up at health sites, particularly in the highest burden countries. And the consultations have done an excellent job. The leadership of Cardinal Turkson and, and, and Bob and others have created the conditions where the key players find a way to adjust their own sort of standard operating procedure and thinking and can accelerate the continued improvement of those tools. Just one specific example, the CEO, a terrific leader in her own right, CEO of VEF Healthcare, has said her participation in the Rome consultations allowed Health Healthcare to accelerate their work on pediatric DTG by at least a year because of the kinds of things that got done and discussed and reviewed during the Rome consultations.
0: So, you know, it sounds like the neutral convening authority of of the vatican you know not a regulatory agency not a specific care provider was was really essential in in creating a, a space where different groups could come together and and talk you know about what was needed and kind of the give and take of how to move diagnostics and and treatment forward but you know you mentioned that the church has a, a long history you know not just going back one century or two but really going all the way back with considerable experience in helping populations through pandemic And plagues and the like. What has it been like working in the 21st century here with all of these different organizations around the world? Would you say that this has been, you know, a fairly smooth process comparatively, or do you feel like it's been tough to bring people together? You know, how has has the um, collaboration unfolded? You know, over the past few years? Well, I
2: think the collaboration has really unfolded very well. And uh, it was very interesting, the first meeting that we convened, that we had so many high-level people in the pharmaceutical industry. At that point, we were focusing almost exclusively on the treatment aspects, responding you know, within a day, uh, saying, yes, I will be there after they received their letter of invitation from Cardinal Turkson, and coming with a real interest and commitment to, to be engaged. At the same time, I think that the church, as as we were convening people, we didn't have any competition to to worry about. I mean, we we don't have a tax system that pharmaceutical manufacturers have to pay taxes to. And we also came with a strong Catholic social doctrine uh, that really, first of all, prioritizes the rights of children. The Vatican was the third country to ratify the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And also, because of our health care system, extending all over. We have a commitment to universal health care to the poorest of the people. Just yesterday, the Pope addressed the diplomatic corps accredited to the Holy See. We have 189 countries that have diplomatic relations with with the Vatican. And and he emphasized very, very strongly yesterday the belief in universal and compassionate health care for all people. And he emphasized twice that this is a right. So there was a doctrine behind this as well. But then as we brought people together, we were able to facilitate a conversation among people who might be competitors in the business field and also might see governments as interfering with what they want to do or how they want to do it, who were very concerned about intellectual property rights. And we were able to facilitate a discussion, first of all, for them to identify that some of them had some very common issues that they were struggling with. For example, the R&D companies and the generic companies very often in the discussion said, well, that's the same thing that's bothering us. So what can we do about that? And then when we involved the the regulators, the companies were able to say, well, we could make more progress on this, but your rules are interfering with that. You know, you're reacting to say, why are we taking seven to 10 years to get a drug on the market? But most of it is because we have to follow your rules to get the qualifications to do that. And we we had, you know, one experience where one of the government regulators was present and said, well, we could change that rule. So it was that kind of open discussion in a non-threatening atmosphere that I think, you know, really helped us to make the progress and then we realized the next step was that it wasn't only enough to focus on the treatment but you know many children were never being diagnosed and so by the time that they presented symptoms very often the treatment was not effective because it was much too late in the process and so that's when we started looking much more at the diagnosis and there we found that in some cases for example with the gene expert machine many governments or agencies had bought these for TB diagnosis and yet the same technology could diagnose HIV and yet those funders were saying no we bought this only for one disease you have to use it only for the one disease and so we were able to then develop another discussion around this uh, with a lot more solidarity and sharing and seeing that you know the biggest uh, cause of death among children with HIV was TB but unless we work on these things together we're going to lose many many children to both of those diseases And so these were the things that we were able to do by bringing people together. And as I'm reminded very frequently, we also left enough time for good espresso coffee in the morning and the afternoon and very nice lunches where you could have a lot of the decisions being made outside the the conference room, but really influencing the commitments that were going to be made, you know, during that conference room discussion.
0: So a lot of mediation on the one hand, you know, really just helping people understand where their interests might align or where they could, you know, find greater alignment among their interests, but also a fair amount of of time for just the kind of informal networking that allows people to to see where they have common ground as well.
2: Yes, and, and it really helped, as Chip was saying, to have the leadership of Cardinal Turkson who was the head of the Vatican's office for justice and peace. We saw this as a justice issue, not only as a health issue. uh, But then in the very first meeting, the Pope himself sent a message to this group of people and, and talked about how he was expecting that real progress would be made. And several times since then has referred to that process. Even when COVID hit, he was referring back to the kind of progress that we made on the pediatric AIDS issues. And so this was also a motivator to have people work together and decide to make commitments. And then we had monitored those commitments as well and reported against them.
1: I think another reason to your earlier question, why was this effective, is during the course of the discussions, people were, were sort of steered into making specific commitments about addressing a rule or a policy or a step or an investment. And we gathered those commitments. You know, as Bob said earlier, there are lots of meetings and lots of rhetoric, very well intentioned, but it doesn't always translate. I, one of the important elements of uh, why the wrong consultations have worked very well is the gathering of these commitments that are made by the entities themselves. I mean, Veeve's commitments were defined by Veeve. They weren't imposed by anyone else, similar with uh, other companies, The FDA and others made commitments. We track those. They're on a a public website. We have quarterly webinars that review progress towards those commitments. So someone will come onto the line and say our commitments were number 58 through 61. We're on track on these two. There's a collegial accountability component to this that I think uh, stands out very significantly Uh, And a leaning into it. People want to meet their commitments. They're delighted to report that they're on track. This is going to allow X to happen that otherwise wouldn't have happened. That's a a really meaningful and tangible part of what the the Rome consultations have produced.
0: So really high-level leadership, transparency around data, a rights-based framework, and really an ability to come together on a routine basis, both to share experiences, to report on progress, and to continue to develop the kind of informal relationships that facilitate greater collaboration in the field and at the global level. So I want to shift now to our our current situation under COVID-19. And in 2020, 2021 here, despite all of these efforts, we know that by the beginning of 2020, Global momentum on eliminating pediatric HIV had slowed, new infections rising in some countries, and efforts to roll out some of these newer testing, point-of-care testing and initiation on treatment stalling in many places as well. Now with COVID-19, disruptions to health services and supply chains, the diversion of funds and other resources to outbreak response, all of this threatens to undermine some of the progress that had been made. Widen the gap further between adult and pediatric services, even when some of these new antiretroviral formulations, like dolutegravir, have been approved and and are now you know becoming available. So kind of an ironic situation. So I want to ask you know how you see the partners coming together under the Rome Action Plan in the COVID context. You know aware that the espresso and <laughs> lunches are not possible in in this kind of context, but certainly you can still come together. And then really, you know, what kind of the one or two things you'd like to see the partners take on over the next year as, you know, we hope vaccines roll out and countries begin to start to emerge from this crisis. You know, what would you like to see come out of this? So, Bob, let me start with you.
2: First of all, I have to say that we've had a good infrastructure already responding to HIV and especially pediatric HIV, and so some of that infrastructure we've been able to even bring over to the response to COVID because it's many of the same organizations, faith-based organizations, very active in this area. So I was called very early by uh, WHO to say, "Can you help us reach out to the faith-based organizations and religious leaders on COVID?" And so we. Said, simply use the same list and we started meeting virtually with the people in the EpiWin Department of WHO to get the faith-based groups around, especially the areas of getting accurate information out about COVID and getting people to respect all of the, the means of preventing the spread. And now that same group is working on trying to combat the vaccine uh, reticence and vaccine denial. So we, we use the same uh, group, but then specifically around the impact of COVID on pediatric HIV work, we very quickly gathered the same partners that have been involved in these Vatican meetings virtually, first of all, to make sure that what were the gaps in terms of threatening the treatment access on HIV. And then we also worked with governments to uh, try to make sure that we minimize those gaps in, in service. And then also we continued the discussions around the pediatric HIV. We had been planning to gather a group in Rome 5 in April of last year. And, you know, we were very much involved in our final plans for that. We were debating the space in the room and, and, you know, all of the conditions that we needed to bring at least 100 people together to Rome. We realized quickly enough that that was not going to be possible. And so we started working on, first of all, more frequent webinars so we could keep up the momentum in terms of keeping to the commitments that were made the year before. And also then we planned uh, later in the year, in November, a Rome 5 virtual meeting where we had two four-hour marathons uh, two days uh, after another, and we had 150 people gathered. That was more than we could have put into this small room at the Vatican. So in many ways, we were able to keep up the momentum, but we also then added a newer emphasis or a more intensive emphasis on, on TB. So pediatric TB, especially as the cause of death for so many children living with pediatric HIV. And we have a whole new set of commitments around that as well. So we're keeping it up. We know that COVID has interfered with some access to treatment and diagnosis, but we're hoping that the commitment will stay and that we will be able to close the gap once again as effective ways of vaccination are, are found with uh, COVID.
0: Well, and it sounds like you've been able to bring more people into the discussion as a consequence of some of the, the virtual technology and add a, a new focus or, or deepen your focus, I guess, on tuberculosis as well. Well, so, looking ahead, Chip, how do you see EGPAF and, and the other partners, you know, working together in the COVID context and over the next year or so? What are one or two, you know, areas that that you'd like to to see partners take on as we, I guess, hopefully, <laughs> emerge from this COVID crisis?
1: I think we've all seen that COVID-19 has um, had a very negative effect on the continuity of services, a variety of services, including HIV testing and treatment and care. I don't think we really fully appreciate the depth and all of the complete nature of those disruptions. So we're continually assessing that and getting more data, not just the you know, reduced ANC visits, uh, for example, or clinical visits. But the effect on healthcare workers, I don't think we've mentioned them yet. They're huge risks. They don't always have uh, adequate protections for themselves, laboring under enormous pressure and strain in their own difficulties and challenges in their communities and families and, and so on. So. The hit from COVID is material, I, I think, quite large, and so the priority has to be to recover from that, to rebuild, to reconstitute services, to find those that would have been infected but not tested during this period. AgPath specifically is working with Africa CDC. I mean, at the core, until there's a vaccine in numbers sufficient for low- and middle-income countries, we're talking about a test-and-trace uh, regimen, right? and uh, rolling out rapid antigen testings, which has not been the norm in the past. So there's work to be done and we're going to be a partner in that. We already are in some instances and that will have to continue. I, I think the focus, and we still have the, the planning work to do in terms of a, uh, a future Rome consultation, if that were to be possible uh, later in the year, has to be on the uptake of these tools that have been produced, whether that's DTG, to have it out and at a low cost is fabulous, but unless and until it's in clinics, unless and lesson until it's distributed then to patients, it hasn't achieved its potential, similarly with point-of-care EID. Um, that uh, will have an enormous <laughs> effect, not just on knowing who's infected, but the initiation of treatment for kids. So what kinds of things do we have to do What additional commitments are necessary uh, so that there is uptake at scale of the kinds of tools we've been calling for for many years and are now effectively in our hands? How do we get them out of our hands? and into the hands of healthcare workers and others. We also have to continue to move on the TB agenda, co-infection using technology that can test for both TB and HIV, and basically using the the platform and the the services that the faith-based community has in place that PEPFAR has invested heavily in, through ministries of health as well it's it's going to take everyone faith service providers public service providers and others to manage and, and try and contain as much as possible the um, COVID pandemic while vaccines are made available so there's no shortage of issues that we can take up and i think because of this last virtual rome consultation just I, I think it exceeded all of our expectations. We're not surprised, but you never know until you know, right? It, it just, it really was uh, well done, well moderated by Bob and really enthusiastic participation. So we have some energy to take into uh 21 agenda.
0: So looking ahead as, you know, as we look back to 2016, 2010 and earlier and looking ahead, this coming together of not just healthcare not just program implementation but you know many different sectors financial you know health workers the pharmaceutical companies the regulatory agencies the faith community and government officials and and many others is really important to you know help adapt some of the existing programs for the covid context and really improve on those and and see an even greater Pickup up and response in 2021 and beyond. So Chip Lyons and Bob Vitillo, thank you very much for speaking with me today. And best of luck to you and your colleagues as you continue your work on behalf of children living with HIV globally. Thank you for listening to AIDS 2021. To learn more about CSIS's research on the global fight against HIV AIDS, Go to CSIS.org and look for the Global Health Policy Center program page.